Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to part three and the finale of A Very Lonely Road by Jake Wicklax. I'm going to jump right on in folks, but before I do, this episode is not for little ears. By little ears, I of course mean kiddos, little guys and girls, and not people with physically small ears. You're of course welcome to listen. Jokes aside, this is not safe for work and has explicit and adult themes. Turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something different. I suddenly heard the rumbling of a car engine behind me, and saw the tree trunks around me glow, slightly illuminated. I dropped to the ground and rolled behind a tree. I glanced backward to see high beams making their way through the forest. It was them, alright. And then that damned Cadillac did the worst thing it could possibly do. It stopped. I lowered my face to the ground and shut my eyes tight, and prayed for the best. I heard two car doors open and shut, and then I heard Keaton say, I just saw her, swear to God I did. Really? Asked Peter. Yes, really. She's over there, in that direction. She's hiding. Keaton spoke in such a mischievous tone. This really was just a game to him. I know you're out there, said Keaton. Oh, hold up. I think I see her. Look, look, look. You see her head peeping out over there. Shit. I tensed up and lay there so still that I felt paralyzed. Took extra care not to twitch even a muscle for fear that it would cause a few dead leaves to crackle. I heard two separate pairs of feet crunching through the leaves and the crunching got louder and closer. Yeah, there she is, said Keaton. And then he raised his voice to Tad. Hey, Amy! I know that's you! Time to go. I sprang up and bolted into the darkness of the forest, and I immediately heard my pursuers break into a run. I felt pain shoot up through my ankles, probably from my eccentric leap an hour before. Not now! I told myself. I commanded my heels to stop with the pain, and they obeyed momentarily. But those crunching footballs behind me were getting close. I made the mistake of glancing over my shoulder, and when I did, I saw Keaton moving like a roadrunner, his scrawny frame almost aerodynamic. It was dark now, and the faint rays from those high beams outlined Keaton's grisly silhouette. When I turned my head forward again, I saw a dark void, a pit, in the ground, and then immediately felt a great shift in weight as gravity yanked me downward. I fell into what must have been a dried up pond, maybe seven feet deep, eight perhaps. However deep this pit was, it was enough to knock the wind from my lungs when I hit the ground. I groaned as I lay there in the soggy leaves. (sighs) One of my ribs throbbed, and I was certain it had popped out. Though my ears rang, I could hear Keaton's sinister snicker just above me. Whoa, took a little tumble, eh? He said, That's what happens when you run in the dark. What a klutz. What a damn klutz. 
I rolled on my back and looked up to see Keaton and Peter stand at the edge of the pond and look down at me. <laughs> Keaton giggled and pretended to try and shove Peter off the edge. I was so tired and in such pain and so fed up with all this that I wanted to die in that moment. I pushed and pushed to try and speak, but my lungs would not allow it. I heaved, but wasn't granted the ability to inhale. This happened twice more, and then I could breathe again, and I could utter words that came out in weak grunts. Please, I uttered. Please, just, just kill me. Come on, Amy, Keaton replied. Don't take the coward's way out. You're better than that. Besides, we still got more to do. Peter, let's get her out of there. I sat in the back seat of the Cadillac, with my ankles and wrists duct taped. Before I knew it, I was seeing that sinister shack once again, along with those tree shadows that casted themselves upon it. The only thing that was different from last time was that Billy no longer wriggled in agony on the ground. He was nowhere in sight. We're back, Keaton said as he smirked at me and bounced his eyebrows manically. He frowned and turned to Peter. Turn the engine off. The two dragged me to the shack, and when we entered I could hear faint grunting noises coming from the corner. Female grunting noises. It was Julie. She was hogtied with duct tape, and her mouth was taped too. I sobbed a bit when I saw her like this, treated like an animal. That's sweet said Keaton. Here, go sit next to your friend. He shoved me to the floor so that I lay next to Julie. I placed my head on her shoulder to try and comfort her, and she nuzzled me to reciprocate. Keaton walked to the back of the barn and took out his lighter and lit a single candle and set the candle on the floor in the center of the room. The candle flickering made his shadows dance on the wall and the ceiling of the shack. He plopped down with his legs crisscrossed and let out an exhausted sigh. Oh, woo, man, he said. Glad we got that out of the way. Got a little sketchy there for a minute, but we're back on track. Peter, get your ass over here. Peter stood sheepishly in the corner, but obeyed Keaton and came and sat down next to him. Keaton clapped his hands and rubbed them together. Okay. Now we can start. So, truth or dare was a mild success. What should we play now? Silence filled the room. Peter stared off into the distance as he nibbled on the tops of his fingers. Then Keaton patted the side of his face to get his attention. Hey, talking to you. What's another game we can play? I don't know any, Peter replied. Christ alive! Keaton pondered for a moment and then snapped his fingers. I got it. Look at us. The way we're sitting. He looked at Peter and Julie and I like we were supposed to respond. Then he gave up. Spin the bottle. Let's play spin the bottle. Yeah, said Peter. Th th that's, that's, yeah, we can play that. Okay, I'll use my knife as the bottle. Peter immediately perked. Are you sure that's a good idea? Shut the fuck up, Peter. They're tied like a couple of oinkers. 
Keaton pulled out his knife and placed it in the middle of our little four-way. Alrighty, who wants to spin? He looked at Julie and I in a rhetorical fashion. Guess you gals will sit this one out. I'll spin the bottle, since you are encumbered. Keaton placed his fingers on the middle of the knife and spun it. The knife whirled around like an airplane propeller and then slowed and stopped. The blade was pointed at Peter and the handle pointed to Julie. Alrighty, said Keaton. Peter and Julie, you lovebirds are up. Peter stared blankly. For, for what? Don't you want to pop that cherry? I'm not really feeling like that. Keaton rolled his eyes. Well, then pop another cherry. What do you mean? I mean, stick something else in her. Keaton motioned to the knife. Peter, you gotta break some new ground tonight. Ain't this the whole reason you and me and Billy came out tonight? To have a time? To try new shit? To step out of your comfort zone? Right? Peter nodded. So what are you waiting for? Pick up the fucking knife, Peter. Do something. Peter gazed at the knife for quite some time. Julie started to grunt and groan and weep. Peter reached for the knife and placed his hand on it and then scrutinized it with doe eyes for a little bit longer. Then he picked up the knife and crawled to Julie. Keaton casually popped the cigarette into his mouth and lit it and took a deep puff. He didn't pay too much attention to Peter. Julie's grunts and groans got louder and more frantic as Peter slowly raised the knife. It wiggled in his trembling hand. Now? Asked Peter. Yes, now, said Keaton as he stared off into space. I rolled onto my side to look away. Just as I did, I heard a sickening, stabbing sound. Julie's muffled wails followed. I had no idea where she was stabbed. It was too horrible to look. I shut my eyes and listened to her suppressed screams and her frantic but useless thrashing. I heard Keaton blow a puff of smoke and then say, Hit her again, in the chest. The sounds I heard next came in a horrifying sequence. Peter removing the knife, then silence, then another stabbing sound, and then death-like silence. No more screams, no more stabs, total emptiness. Keaton did a slow clap. Bravo! That was great, Peter. Morning's very first pale light began to peek up from behind the horizon. I lay in the back of the Cadillac with the unbearable knowledge that Julie's corpse was in the trunk. Peter drove along a gravel path even deeper in the woods than the shack. And Keaton sat smoking cigarettes in the passenger seat and said something about dumping us into a pond. The one Billy had mentioned earlier. As I lay there, I thought of everything. I thought of Julie and how she had gone so young and how her mother and father would handle her passing. I thought of my mum and what the news of my own death would do to her. I wonder if she'd she'd ever gotten gotten over it. Probably not. I laid my head back and sighed, and gradually came to a sort of peace as I looked back on my life and decided I'd lived it to the fullest of my ability. It was short, but it was well spent. And then I caught something glistening in the corner of my eye. It was under the passenger seat and 
the end of it was visible. I scrutinized for a moment to try and figure out what it was. And then it hit me. It was the multi-tool that Peter had dropped. Followed by Keaton saying, Forget the fucking multi-tool. Earlier in the evening. I was suddenly no longer at peace. I had a chance. A chance to live. I slowly and quietly, but still purposely, pivoted my hips and reached out with my bound feet. I placed my heels down onto the multi-tool and dragged. The multi-tool didn't budge. I placed my heels down again and pressed harder, and this time, when I dragged, the multi-tool was moved by my feet. Yes, please, God, please. I pulled the tool closer and closer until it was parallel with my shoulders. Now came the hard part, actually getting the tool into my hands without alerting the lunatics up front. I wormed a bit closer to the edge of the seat. This would take some flexibility, and I thought I may even have to dislocate a shoulder to reach it. I hoped not. My bound hands now hung off the edge of the back seat. I bit my bottom lip and stretched both arms and wiggled my fingers towards the multi-tool. The tip of my middle finger just grazed the top of it. I was maddeningly close. My heart ceased a moment as Keaton glanced at Peter. Surely I was in their peripheral vision. If he glanced back at me, he had certainly put the pieces together and his suspicion would grow and he would eventually scrutinize long enough to unveil my scheme. I slowly retracted my hands back to the seat. No sudden movements. I didn't want to alert him. Keaton did glance back and smirk at me. I held my breath as he did this. Tried to look as frightened and hopeless as possible. Please turn back around. Turn back around and light up another cigarette. After a few unbearable moments, he did turn back around. And he did light up another smoke. This was the best chance I was going to get. I wriggled closer to the edge of the seat, so that half my body hung off the seat. I stretched with more intensity than I'd ever stretched before. My fingers tapped the edge of the multi-tool and even moved it a bit. Don't, Don't push, push it, it further, further away, away you, you imbecile, imbecile, I told myself. I stretched farther and harder. The fabric of my muscles felt like they'd rip at any given moment. My fingers danced around the multi-tool as they desperately attempted to grasp it. I was so close, and for a moment I thought I might scream out with uncontrollable frustration. Hold it together! This is your one shot! Don't want to end up in a ditch, do you? My eyes went wide as I felt the multi-tool flimsily positioned between my index and middle finger. I was not going to let go. No force on this earth was going to get my fingers to loosen their grip weak as it was. I rotated the multi-tool, and my fingertips searched for the knife that was surely folded within. I found the little ridge that one uses to grip and unfold the blade from its resting place, and I wedged my finger now into the ridge and pulled. I was careful to prevent the knife from making a click once it fully unfolded. The knife was out. Now to cut myself loose, I gripped the knife and sawed away at the first layer of tape. This gorilla tape was firm, but I was more determined than it was. Though the muscles and ligaments in my fingers and wrists burned like furnaces, I kept cutting away. My fear and my determination gave me superpowers. My mind already laughed manically at the thought of my imminent escape. The tape was now halfway gone. The, the hell's that, that sound? Keaton blurted. My heart sank. Keaton glanced around the car like a bloodhound that had caught the scent of a deer. 
I wasn't sure if I should speed up my cutting or stop completely. I chose to speed it up. If he looked down, he would see the knife, and my escape would be put to an end. Keaton followed the sound of my cutting, and his eyes drew downward, and rested on the sight of my hand soaring away at the tape. The fuck's going- Keaton trailed off as his eyes adjusted in the darkness. Fuck! He reached for the multi-tool, just as I cut free from the tape. I sprang up as if back from the dead, and raised the knife and plunged it down into the side of Keaton's neck, and pushed the blade deep, and then twisted. A scream erupted from his throat and then transitioned into a gargling noise. I felt the car jerk and then swerve as Peter panicked in the front seat. What? What's going on? What's happening? As I twisted the knife deeper into Keaton's neck, hot blood sprayed out onto my face and in the other direction onto Peter's face. The car's swerving grew wilder and then it swerved off the path and hit a bump and hopped off the ground for a second and then crashed into a boulder. Peter's head shot forward and slammed into the airbag. Keaton, the knife still stuck in his neck, flew forward and hit the dashboard. I hit the back of the passenger seat, and that rang my bell. I faded out for 30 seconds or so, maybe a minute. I opened my eyes and the first thing I saw was Keaton lying against the center console with a knife still sticking out of his neck and streams of blood flowing from both corners of his mouth. Peter was out of sight and the driver's side door was open and when I peeked outside I could see him crawling along the ground at a turtle's pace. Keaton's left eye was beat red, completely filled with blood. His hat had been knocked off his head and I realized this was the only time I'd ever seen him without it. I couldn't tell if he was dead, or if he was staring at me. And then he blinked, slowly. His mouth turned upward in a wicked grin. His voice was low and raspy and distorted. Something I assume was down to his vocal cords being sliced, and it sounded satanic. Strange noises would emerge from his throat when he spoke and this warped voice would double and triple. Amy, you dirty girl. He hissed. I gotta hand it to you. Shut up! Shut up! I said. Shut the hell up right now! You're gonna burn in hell! I've always been there, Amy. I've been there since the day I was born. I don't walk the earth like you do. I walk the spirit world, Amy. The spirit world. <laughs> a cough emerged from his throat and interrupted him. And when it came out, so did little wads of dark blood. He took a deep breath and looked me right in the eyes. Be seeing you, Amy. His head dropped back and his jaw fell open. And I saw that he was dead. Forget the fucking multi-tool. Those words ended up being the most ill-dodged he'd ever spoken. I climbed out of the car and almost tripped as I realized I had yet to cut the tape from my ankles. I did so, and then I looked to the forest to see Peter still crawling through piles of dead leaves. I approached him and when I got to him, I could hear his sniffles and whimpers and agonized groans. Sucks, doesn't it? I asked him. I can't feel my legs, Amy. 
he replied. I, I think we, we hit, hit a rock or something. Yes, yes we did. I need medical attention. I need an ambulance. Yes, yes you do. I paused for a moment and savored the weasel's suffering. Goodbye, Peter. I walked off through the woods and toward the road, following the path that the morning sun now kindly lit for me. And this concludes A Very Lonely Road. Just wow. I had an absolute blast reading this one. A big thank you to Jake Wicklax for this amazing story, and I hope you enjoyed it too. This Friday, I'm going to try something different. Maybe I'll delve into rituals or do something that I've been planning to do for a very, very long time. You know how I like to surprise you, right? Also, if you have any suggestions on what you'd like next, don't hesitate. Email me. Reach out to me on stories, fables, ghostly tales at gmail.com. More and more of you are doing that, and frankly, it makes my day to read an email in my inbox saying how you've enjoyed the show, an episode, or that you listen. Hearing from you lot puts a bounce in my step, is what I mean. And if you have a couple of seconds, hop onto my iTunes page, leave the podcast a review, as that helps others find the podcast, and in turn, provides exposure to authors on this podcast. You're helping me and them, the authors. And for those of you who already have done this, you guys and gals are brilliant. Now stay tuned for Friday. And as always, till next, we meet. meet.